You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome. That's my cue. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. This is episode, I man, I think we're up to 370 by now. Recorded on September 17, 2019. My name is Chris Spangle. We're going to continue our look at uh, the state of policing in America. And we're going to talk about civil asset forfeiture tonight. So stay tuned. Going to be a great show. Reinhold's here. Trisha Stewart from Gingerarchy is here. And uh, we'll continue the conversation right after this warning. Warning. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Hey, everybody. My name is Chris Spangle, and I'm so excited to be here this week. Uh, Three shows in a week. I'm spoiling you all. It's like it's 2017 around here. Uh, So we had a great conversation with Rob Cortell. If you haven't listened to The Swamp Explained, please do. There's separate feed if you want to get caught up for that. And Rob asked me to tell you, hey, go follow him on Twitter, at Rob Cortell. You can find that in the show notes of last week's episode. There's a lot going on with the Jones Act, uh, so be sure to uh, go check that out. Uh, I will be in Texas this next week, um, the week of the 23rd, 24th or whatever, for a few days. So if uh, if you're in Texas... I'll be down there for the uh, national radio show, the NAB. So um, I'm taking. I'll be there Friday. I'm taking an extra day and just to kind of explore Dallas. So if you're around Friday evening and want to get together, then hit me up in the DMs on Facebook, and uh, maybe we can uh, arrange something for all you Texas peeps. Going to get to see the great Jason Doolittle, one of my favorite people on the planet. He lives there in the area, and so we're going to go uh, out to eat. And I'm going to solve the Kennedy assassination. So honestly, I've got a big week ahead of me. So, uh, but we, we will not be here next week, but uh, hopefully with these three episodes, we're getting you through. Uh, Harry is out sick tonight. He had a tickle in his throat, he said. He said, I, I, uh, I forget what he said. He said has sore throat. So uh, we don't know if he's joining us. I sent him the link just in case his throat tickle cleared up. But uh, staging a coup uh, of the co-host position is Reinhold. Reinhold, how are you doing? Well, you should turn your mic on there. Now you're automatically disqualified. I have. I am completely. You, this was quite lost. a. This was quite the. I'm coup. trying to keep up to the professionalism standards <laughs> we have here and we maintain for everybody. <laughs> I, no. To be fair, I turned your mic off when you went to get water. What, so. what I what I don't understand, and I'm trying to figure out, is what it is that Harry complains about because I'm burning up. It's hot in here. It's hot in here. I don't know what's going on. It's 66 degrees, and I'm uh, sweating too. So maybe I it's two shirts. And I just I don't I don't think I can do it. So I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna be sweating by the end of this thing. Uh, on Zoom, live uh, from wherever the hell she lives, uh, Trisha oh. Stewart is with us. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and my feelings are really hurt. Thank you. You live near the Great Lakes. I don't want to say exactly where you live because I don't want people stalking you. It's already happened. Honestly, <laughs> I know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 
Trisha is, uh, I believe the people on the internet call you a cutie with a booty, and they slide in your DMs and uh, get mad that you don't respond to them within five minutes of receiving the message. Yes, that is true. So, uh, once again, we would have read you some of those messages, but I failed to prepare. So, Thanks, uh, Chris. Yep, it's my <laughs> fault. I'll take the blame on this one. Um, yeah, so it is great. And there, while you're subscribing to the Swamp Explain, make sure that you check out uh, Libertarian Politics and Policy. That's where Dennis posts episodes. Gingerarchy, where Trisha posts episodes. You got some good stuff coming up, don't you? Oh, yes. I have some really cool names and interviews coming up. And then I think we're going to load up some other stuff that people haven't heard, which is um, very funny. Some some good humor there. So Very good. So we're very excited for that. And we're uh, excited to have you both here. Um, man, I was going to... I didn't even really think of anything. I've just been thinking so much about the topic that we've been uh, talking about uh, we, we didn't get a lot of hate. I, I don't know if you guys got any hate for the episode, but I was surprised, and maybe our audience has just gone full off the deep end libertarian along with us, uh, that I didn't get more hate for the policing the police episode. I, I did uh, get a few, hey, there are people out there like my good friend Todd McComas of uh, the Pat McAfee organization who has been out there using comedy trying to humanize police officers. Um, and explain the job from, and so I, I did get one piece of hate on that end. I don't know if you guys got any, but for the most part, I got a lot of people saying, uh, yeah, I felt that that was a good episode that kind of challenged the power of the police. And if you haven't listened to part one, please go listen to that right now. But I, I don't think we were really too hard on the police as much as we were at the institution itself. I mean, right. We Trisha, talked about how Trisha, he said hard on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to do it. <laughs> no. Set them up for you. Sorry, thank you. But no, that we we really were pretty. We, we tried to make sure that we, everyone understood that we were coming from a place where we know that most police officers are are really out there just trying to do what they think right. is best and trying to help the community. And um, it's just the power structure and the systems and the um, the upper management with rules and regulations and nobody really having a check on the police is where the issue kind of falls apart. I yeah, I've been watching Cold Case, and I know that TV shows are usually not your best uh, judge of it, but it's not a it's a documentary A&E type show, and it's mm-hmm. basically these police detectives that usually the second generation of detectives picks up a cold case and works it, and you see the efforts and the lengths that these detectives go through to try and solve these crimes, and it is really amazing, and the police work is really good, and they're... They're trying to do what's right and put actual bad guys that committed murder in jail and solve, you know, and, and you watch that and you go, there are good cops in the world. There are good people trying to do the work the right way, you know, but I do think that it, you, you can, two things can be true at once. There can be good police officers who are trying to do good work, who are trying to make a difference in a positive way in the world, but then there also can be the same truth that, the industry is largely becoming militarized, and that's a problem for a myriad of reasons, as we outlined. And it's the the idea that we are asking the police to solve every societal ill. And at the end of the day, that really is what the message of these two episodes that we're trying to get across to people, that hopefully you walked away with in that last episode, is that politicians and the public that votes them in are asking police officers to solve every problem that we have in society. 
we're asking police officers to do too much because at the end of the day the the laws of uh, you see to serve and protect started by the LAPD uh they're there to serve and protect the laws of the of the commonwealth or the state or the jurisdiction that signs their paycheck and so when we turn to the government and we turn to force essentially to solve every problem in society, you know, from child hunger to um, to making you buy insurance to every every problem has uh, that we solve through a law ends up being enforced by the police. And so when we ask the government to do too much, we shouldn't be surprised that the overtaxed police departments start looking. It's it's a set of perverse incentives, Tricia. Mm-hmm. So. Uh- just can i just say something about what you guys just said yeah um as far as um you know not criticizing and that there are good police officers out there i understand that there are people that took that position um and thought they were doing good and serving and protecting and then again i've I've seen that show chris and i i do believe that um especially detectives happen to be a little more intellectual than i would say the average beat cop uh as far as uh they want to solve a crime and, and, and find somebody that's actually committed a real crime. But in the end, it's the monopoly on force that is the issue with the police uh, because the government uses them. So there's no competition and they, there's a monopoly on force and therein lies every issue. You could tie everything back to that. There's no checks and balances They are people that hold a position of power and hold, uh, for some people, you know, career or whatever, not through any type of, um, they don't have to be good at what they do. Mm -hmm. Police don't get fired. Uh, They just have to do what the politicians tell them to do. The the, The worst part of policing is the monopoly. Obviously, in any society, you would need security. Uh, you know what I mean? You need people to find people that commit crimes and arrest them or prevent them or whatever. But uh, no matter how I libertarian your society is, there's going to be a show like Cold Case where there are two psychopaths that rape and kill a girl. I mean, that's human nature. I mean, at its very basis nature, there will always be a, a small percentage of the human animal that behaves mm-hmm. that way. And no matter how libertarian and utopian you'd like it to be, there will always be bad actors. There will people be people who commit fraud. Uh, yes. And so there's always going to be a need for security. And I think sometimes people think a libertarian society, when we say we don't like police, we're not saying there should be no security, there should be no police. Right. We're saying there should be no monopoly because just as conservatives will say, uh, bad teachers should be allowed to be fired. They don't Mm -hmm. deserve tenure. They won't make that same argument about the police. And the left, Democrats, will often say bad police need fired, but then they won't say, but but not firing the bad teachers. So what libertarians are saying is like, no, let's let's not have the monopoly that creates the incentive to keep bad police or that protects Mm -hmm. its own because there is only one option. And that's kind of what you're saying is that there should be security and there will be security in a libertarian society. It just won't be monopolized with one single institution doing the policing. Yes, and through violent, funded through violent coercion, and and there's nowhere else to go. Explain uh, violent uh, coercion. 
so violent coercion, um, so for some of you that are maybe new to libertarianism, uh, libertarianism basically, in my opinion, which is always right, is we reject the initiation of violence. Okay. That doesn't mean that some people don't deserve uh, violence against them if they predicate it or if, if, you know, if they initiate violence, you can defend yourself. What it, what that can relate to in every topic of libertarianism. And then especially the police is that I have not hurt you. I have not stolen your property. And yet in the same time, you could actually lock me in a cage, murder me. And I have not done those things. Therefore you're initiating violence. It's a very simple principle. Um, and if you start to understand it, you could weave it through every part of your life. So cops right now have a monopoly, which in, in essence, they are initiating violence. Now, if you could choose between people and you could choose to live in a society uh, where you had a security force that you wanted to protect you from certain things, but say, uh, you know, you had a taillight out, they couldn't pull you over for that because there's no victim to that crime. Unless you signed a contract and saying, I will drive on this road, making sure that, you know, my signals and lights work correctly. Um, what happens, and this just goes to praxology, uh, when you have a monopoly, then it's, it's not, it's not a desirable outcome. It's, it's what the state or the people in power want. Um, it, it's not what the consumers want. And we are consumers. And if we, if we were able to dictate what security was able to do, that doesn't mean they're not going to be here. That just means that, you know, most people wouldn't, uh, sign a contract where somebody could pull them over for a taillight and tase them. Mm. Like, that's just not, that's not what human beings would do. And it's kind of weird to be honest. But, but I, um, I would argue that we have done that. Because we're the ones who authorize the police to do this. We're the ones who authorize the politicians to put these people in place, to put these rules in place and laws in place. And these things are happening around us, and we're not fighting back as a, a majority of society and making the change that needs to be made. So would it— well, You're saying voting is consent to everything that happens, and that's just quite patently false. <laughs> no, I'm not saying voting is consent. I'm saying— Then how did I, how did I do that? I'm not saying you did it. I'm saying the the majority of people. When are you go on this. Facebook, for example, when yeah. you go on Facebook and say this woman shouldn't have been tased for having a taillight out, the amount of people that are tell defending. you you're an idiot, yeah, they're defending. I mean, people are begging for more government. A lot of times, yeah. they're begging Currently, for right government now, that's solutions. What's going on. Yeah. And that, and and there's a lot of us who are out there, libertarians and other um, like-minded people who are out there saying this isn't right and we shouldn't be allowed to do this, but. At the at the end of the day, the majority of people voting for this stuff want this apparently, which is mind boggling to me. I don't understand why they do. I know um, I exactly. Think, why. I think it's propaganda and mm -hmm. a weird mindset where they think that they're so scared of something and they don't know what it is, so they're just kind of glomming that fear onto everything, and and that's how it's kind of happening. But I think more logical and and um, evidence based examination of this people would have a different view on it mm -hmm. and i would like to get us there regardless of whether we do it in the current society or we get to a libertarian society and do it either way i, I just i would like to see the people stand up and say no we're not going to do this anymore we're not going to allow this anymore and have, have the majority of people actually make that difference right 
a happy Constitution Day, Trisha. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had my morning constitutional and thought of it. <laughs> I love you. Um, <laughs> it was so funny because at some point last week, uh, Dennis is like, uh, I, I, I want to make a joke, but I don't know Trisha very well. I'm like, let it fly, buddy. Let it fly. <laughs> oh, baby. Bring it on, Dennis. Uh, so let's... <laughs> Let's jump back into our great show notes by Sam Schultz. Uh, as we kind of continue talking about the evolution of policing, uh, we we talked a lot at the end about the militarization of p- the police and no-knock raids and the erosion of the Fourth Amendment. And I wanted to open this week's episode uh, kind of examining how law has uh, evolved in America, but really across the board. Uh, regarding these no-knock raids and and privacy and the Fourth Amendment issues. Um, So let's give it a historical timeline. And as always, both of you, if you want to jump in and give some uh, more detail, please do. So in 1604, in English common law, the Castle Doctrine protected residents from unannounced government intrusion. And that basically the Castle Doctrine says in, in common law is just widely accepted law, right? So if uh, two people are living together, you don't need to pass any laws. It just says that if, uh, you know, uh, if Trisha and her boyfriend are living together, the government doesn't need to um, put any kind of um, stamp of approval on it. They've lived together for 10 years, so they're common. it's called a common law marriage. It's probably where most of you hear the term common law. But it just the, the general pattern of human behavior... And accepted law is what common law is. And the Castle Doctrine is part of that. And that basically is every man's home is their or woman's home is their castle. That your property is your property. Uh, and that really became enshrined in, in the early 1600s. Now, in 1791, the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution banned unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh and in 1914, in Weeks versus the United States, now, Dennis, you know all good things. When I say 1914, surely you're about to get some rights taken away. Because when 1912, 13, 14 starts popping up in a timeline of historical events, you know it's about to be good. It was an ugly time. Yes. And so in 1914, Weeks versus the United States uh, was passed by the Supreme Court, passed or decided on by the Supreme Court, and it says evidence from illegal searches must be excluded from trials. So that was actually a good protection. Uh, In 1958, in Miller versus the United States, the court said prior notice is required before police can force entry. In 1995, Wilson versus Arkansas, or Arkansas, if you're uneducated, The court said police don't need to knock if there is a risk of danger or destruction of evidence. So if they have reason to believe that you're flushing the cocaine down while, you know, shooting babies in the face, then they can just knock the door down. Which comes out of the drug war. If it wasn't for the drug war and people worried about flushing drugs down a toilet, that never would have had an issue and never would have been in there. And you see that in police procedures. I don't know if this happens in real life, but you're like, did you hear a baby, uh, a woman screaming and a baby? And then they knock the door down. Uh, in 1997, in Richards v. Wisconsin, the courts t- concluded that only reasonable suspicion of danger or evidence destruction is needed to force entry. So uh, that only reasonable suspicion of danger or evidence destruction is needed to force entry. So that erodes your Fourth Amendment and the Castle Doctrine. 
And in 2003, the U.S. versus Banks, the courts ruled that police can force entry 15 seconds after knocking. So it went from, uh, well, you don't need to knock if there's a risk. And then if you have a reasonable suspicion, then you can do whatever you want. And then, eh, but give it 15 seconds. Well, and that's what they've done is they've taken the word in the original amendment that says unreasonable search and seizures and saying, no, that's reasonable that, you know, we, we have to allow them to go in and do that. But... I don't know if that's really what they were trying to say when they were saying unreasonable search and seizure. I think at the time they were saying um, much, much more narrow right. of a of a definition of that uh, reasonableness. Um, so, so that's the problem I always had with a lot of these laws and decisions is what's who's defining reasonable at the time, and, that, right. and that that changes throughout society, and that's why we end up with this living document where people just start putting their own spin on things. And the other thing, too, is common law is used to determine some Supreme Court decisions. Mm. I mean, they, they do take common law into account, so that also changes throughout society. Right. So you can see where the trend has been going right, over the past yeah. 100 years. Common law generally accepted laws over the course of human history, the development from the Roman Empire on the Grecian right. Empire. Um, all right. So after a series of rulings in the 90s, officers were able to obtain a warrant to forcibly enter a house with merely a, quote, reasonable suspicion that announcing would be dangerous or allow the destruction of evidence. Paradoxically, that standard allowed the use of the most extreme force in pursuit of the smallest amounts of drugs, since a few grams or more are quickly flushed than a few bales. Uh, in a 2003 support cream the Supreme Court affirmed the right of officers to break into a residence with a standard warrant after knocking and waiting only 15 to 20 seconds. Three years later, it undercut even that requirement by concluding that evidence remains admissible even when the police barge in more quickly. So you didn't, you didn't need special circumstance. Now it's literally just barge in if you want, and if you're under that 15 seconds, eh, so be it. So thir- 13 states have enacted laws authorizing no-knock warrants altogether. Another 13 have blessed them through rulings by appellate courts. In seven states, no-knock warrants are routinely granted in the absence of explicit authority by statute or the courts. In the 16 states and the District of Columbia, no-knock warrants are not customarily are not customary, but the police can nonetheless make unannounced entries with standard warrants. Oregon is the only state with a law requiring the police to always announce themselves before or before serving a search warrant. Excuse me. So, why do you think that we see um, the Fourth Amendment being eroded? What? What? Because to me, the idea that a person's private property is uh, sacred—it's uh, you know generations of human beings fought up until 1604 to get that right to establish that right. Uh, and then we, over the course of the last 100 years, have been trying to erode that right. I mean, mm-hmm. is it just human nature to to let this stuff go, to allow our neighbors to get their doors broken into, thinking it'll never happen to us? Trish, you want to go on I, that Yeah, I, I want to say, uh, to that point, uh, what has happened is that if you really truly think about what police officers are, because they have a monopoly, because they're agents of the government, they're armed arms of politicians. And so if you look at the way that government has intruded in our lives, it, it, you know, it, government only grows itself. So government has grown and they need their enforcers. And so, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, 
politicians speak and the enforcer, enforcers listen, which happen to be cops in this instance. And uh, we see uh, more laws and less freedom and less liberty as time goes on. And then I, I often think there was a turning point um, in uh, our country, and that would be the 2002 Authorization Act, uh, Patriot Act. Uh, I think that that was probably one of the biggest turning points in our time when people stopped worrying about liberty and accepted everything the government told them and the enforcers, which would be the police locally, um, they, uh, they gave up their liberty for them. And yeah, um, I, I blame the boomers because those people who fought in the streets, the hippies like uh, Reinhold here who fought, you know, for an expansion of liberty in many areas once yeah. 9-11 happened, we talked a lot with that about with Rob Cortell in the last episode. Um, we just let a lot of things go after 9-11. You know, mm-hmm. you had the Patriot yes. Act. You had massive data collection. You have the unauthorized use of military force, the AUMF, as you just articulated. Mm-hmm. You had the, T- the creation of the TSA and the Homeland Security Department. You have so many massive erosions, and nobody fought back in the 90s when you had these little testing cases. And again it goes back to people basically begging for it i mean we have to mm-hmm. if you if you don't want these rights to be eroded like the second amendment if you don't want the second amendment to be eroded you better stand up you better be courageous in your speech and explain why you your rights are non-negotiable and you have to do it for all rights you can't just do it for the one you like mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the, yeah it's the funny thing i noticed is that the American people were going to say, we're not going to let this terrorism change us. We're not going to let what happened on 9-11 changes. It completely did. I mean, they, you, can they argue, won. you can argue that bin Laden, if yeah. you go back and read bin Laden in the 80s and 90s, he won. He yeah, got everything he yep. wanted to do. Right. And it started in 93 yep. when they bombed the World Trade Center the first time. Right. That's when everything started kind of slowly going, a little test casing going on. Uh, civil, civil asset forfeiture, forfeiture got applied to mobsters mm-hmm. only. You know, and and then that was used as the basis for the Patriot Act. Yeah. Once nine eleven happened, so we, you know, talk a good game about how we're not going to let these other countries and what they do to us change our basic belief system, but it totally did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I think that the Patriot Act was the tipping point, which was inevitable, and obviously uh, philosophically, as an anarchist, I know that the state only grows, and there's a point. Uh, when you even like a like a minarchist society loses liberty, that was the point for me. When people accepted complete violation of privacy, um, and and they all didn't just accept it; they worshipped it almost. Uh, they there was such patriotism and and such fear uh, of what would come, and so they gave up their rights very willingly, which is really quite brilliant if you think of it um, in terms of what the state perpetuated in the propaganda. I think that's the only that way was the work. point That was the point we couldn't go back from, yeah. and we can't go back from but that. But even, even James Madison warned against that exact thing happening. Right? Yeah. It's not like we, we haven't seen this coming for years. I mean, Madison said that our rights are going to be lost for fear of other, other countries and war and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right. It, exactly what he said was going to happen, happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that entangling alliances and all that good stuff. Uh, so, <laughs> brilliant analysis on my part. Let's jump to civil <laughs> asset forfeiture. 
Uh, Civil asset forfeiture originated in the British fight against piracy on the open seas. Uh, back in the, you know, the old pirate days. It continued during Prohibition with police officers seizing goods, cash, and equipment from bootleggers in a similar manner to today. The war on drugs, however, is the biggest cause of contemporary civil asset forfeiture. Uh, now, do either of you want to kind of give us a, a loose definition of exactly what that means? Well, originally it was supposed to be let's – people were upset that they would um, – arrest this person for something. It was either a mobster or, or a, a big drug dealer. Right. And they would be able to go out and buy the best attorneys, and they would go all these loopholes. They would get themselves off, and they wanted to crack down on that. So the idea was that you take all their stuff from them when you arrest them so that they can't go out and buy the best attorneys. And then they mm-hmm. have to do with like what anybody else would do, and they would get a fair right. trial that way. But – in my opinion is that they are now taking property from somebody without proving that that person is guilty of a crime. Right. Which only hurts, and it's always going to expand. And it expanded onto just everyday people and people who don't have a lot of money, and they're taking every, every cent from them, basically, that they have. There's no way they can even mount a basic defense at that point. Yeah. As, as we go through this, think about red flag laws. Seems like a good idea in the beginning, and I, at one point on the show, was like, you know, this red flag law where you confiscate a, a reported crazy person's guns, you know, that that seems like it might work. That might be a solution. And then the more you, like, sit and think about it, the more you talk with other people about it, you go, the abuses in 25 years were going to be sitting back going, how did this happen? Why are we allowing this? And nobody cares, just like they don't care about civil asset forfeiture. Well, just like the red, the problem with the red uh, flag laws is that if somebody is too dangerous to own a gun, they're too dangerous to own a car or a knife right. or bomb making mm-hmm. materials right. or access to the library or the internet in order to learn all this stuff. I mean, right. you take that person out of society if they're that far gone. Otherwise, it's used to basically take the guns away from any person who has gone in for any kind of mental issue at all because they can then be marked as, you know, crazy. Right. And nobody goes in to get help anymore. The idea that we're going to uh, that Trump is floating this. Donald Trump, your Republican president, is floating the idea of using Alexa and your Apple Watch to basically uh, signal that this person's crazy. Well, you have one fight with your wife or husband, and then you're mm-hmm. both marked, and then the red flag laws yeah. are, are or tripped. You, you got your phone sitting there next to you while you're watching a movie, and the person on the TV says, "I right. want to kill you," and they're right. like, "Bing, oh, go to the police come." Right. I mean, and when, that's insanity. That right. is completely insane. When we're complete, when we're collecting literally every electronic signal in the entire universe at this point, mm-hmm. basically in Utah through the NSA, like there's. The way you metadata bi- for the win. The way that you build a case is that you have a working theory, and then you go and find the evidence to support your theory. And when you've collected everything on everyone in all time, and it's accessible in an easy to use database, uh, then then it's pretty easy. So, jumping back into civil asset forfeiture, uh, it really entered a new phase in 1984 under the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, championed by Ronald Reagan. Allow, it allowed for police agencies to keep the assets they seized. This highly incentivized the seizure of assets for the purpose of funding police departments rather than pursuing criminal charges. However, the game changed completely in 1996, the year of the landmark Supreme Court decision, Bennis versus Michigan. This ruling held that the innocent owner of uh, the, the innocent owner 
defense was not sufficient to recover asset seized during civil asset forfeiture. So I read that confusingly. So basically, the inno- <laughs> I'm innocent. You can't you have, charge yeah, me. That you have been, you have been, you've gone through a court of law, and they have found that you were there's not enough evidence to prove you guilty. Right. Not technically not, not, innocent. Not that yeah. you're innocent, right, right, that you didn't do it, but that they can't charge you. Right. They still can keep your stuff. So in 1986, as Nancy Reagan encouraged America's youth to, quote, just say no, the Justice Department started the Asset Forfeiture Fund. This sparked a boom in civil asset forfeiture that now has become self-reinforcing. As the criminalization of American life and asset forfeiture has continued to essentially feed each other. In 2014 alone, law enforcement took more stuff from American citizens than burglars did. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let me say, you can go look at the source in our show notes, in our, in our link. In 2014 alone, law enforcement took more stuff from American citizens than burglars did. In 2014, mm-hmm. the total amount of civil asset forfeiture seizures in the United States was $4.5 billion. The total, the total value of property stolen in burglaries was $3.9 billion. The total amount stolen was $4.5 plus $3.9 billion in theft. Uh, so criminal asset forfeiture versus civil asset forfeiture. There's a difference. The primary difference is that criminal asset forfeiture requires a conviction while civil asset forfeiture doesn't. Civil asset forfeiture is a lawsuit against the seized object in question rather than a person. They will sue your car. They will sue your cash. They will sue your dog if they haven't shot it. Uh, The legal burden of proof varies from one state to another, but the most common is preponderance of evidence, not reasonable doubt. So you may remember that from your civil, civil studies or whatever you called it in your high school in a civil case, it's just the preponderance of the evidence. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt as in a criminal case. Uh, so essentially, it means if juries decide that the state's case is more likely to be true than not, 51 to 49 percent, not beyond a reasonable doubt, 100 percent. In a civil asset forfeiture trial, courts can weigh the use of the Fifth Amendment. This is not true in criminal trials. Uh, the burden of proof question becomes crucial when it comes to retrieving property. In criminal cases, assets are returned if the prosecution fails to prove the guilt of the accused. In a civil asset forfeiture trial, the accused effectively has to prove their innocence to get their property back. Thus, civil asset forfeiture is a highly attractive option for police departments looking to scare up extra scratch in tight budgetary times. What's more, the accused is not entitled to legal counsel. This is why... In most cases, this is not economically advantageous to try and get one's property back. The lawyer fees will quickly eclipse whatever the value of the seized assets have. Now, civil asset forfeiture has exploded since 86 when the total seizures were $93.7 million. By 2005, that passed the $1 billion mark. That was double the 2004 amount of $597 million. By 2010, this figure jumped to $2.5 billion, with more than 15,000 forfeiture cases, 11,000 of which were civil, not criminal. And one thing to note in all of that, in all that time where we've gone increase in the civil uh, asset forfeiture, crime has been dropping like a stone. Right. Exactly right. Um, Cash seizures in Tennessee have gotten so widespread that the state legislature has begun to investigate it. They're like, wait, we're stealing too much money. We better look into this. They're going to catch on to us sooner or later. 
got to protect our phony baloney jobs. <laughs> right. I didn't get a rump <laughs> out of that guy. Uh, traffic stops have turned into shakedown operations. Interstate, mm-hmm. Interstate 40 was described as a, quote, major profit center by Phil Williams, a reporter for Channel 5 in Nashville. Much like gangs, police in Tennessee have started engaging in turf warfare over the spoils of civil asset forfeiture. The Dixon Interdiction Enforcement, or DICE, and the 23rd Judicial District Drug Task Force were caught on video trying to cut one another off in their vehicles to stop civilians and search for cash. The head of DICE admitted that it was funded entirely by civil asset forfeiture in cash. In Tennessee, officers were set up to set up a post to bust drug traffickers on a known highway used for muling drugs from Mexico into the United States. However, their post was not set up to stop the flow of drugs into the United States, which one would think the ostensibly to be the goal of the, the war on drugs. Instead, the post was set up to bust cars bound for Mexico that might be carrying cash, a far more valuable commodity for police departments. So they weren't setting up stings for drugs entering the country. They were setting up stings for cash leaving the country. Yes, it's harder for them to get the cash out of the drugs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, they they have to just, you know, steal that under their vest and sell it on their own time like um, normal normal criminals do. I I know this kid, uh, Miss... Prangle, who went to uh, who went to high school in, in in his hometown, the hometown cops would uh, bust kids with their weed and sell it right back to them, uh, and then would also go raid the uh, uh, the closet for all the evidence that they had confiscated on that night, and then go sell it to kids uh, to make extra cash. I don't know where he got his information, but I I know he remembers that clearly. Um, a 1994 study found that police delayed drug busts to increase the value of forfeiture. A 2001 study of 1,400 police departments published in the Journal of Criminal Justice, uh, so it's in a journal, big sample size, found that half of the departments surveyed agreed that civil asset forfeiture was, quote, necessary as a budget supplement. And a 2004 report showed that police departures keep wish lists for items they obtain via civil asset forfeiture, just like fat podcasters who have a link on their website at wearelibertarians.com. They have wish lists. Yeah, you want that fishing boat, right, <laughs> right. so that you can buy it from <laughs> the, the auction. Yes, exactly right. So it, it is often applied to crimes like DWI or violating mm-hmm. the National Halibut Fishing Act. In, in the 85% of all cases, no one is ever charged of a crime in 94% of California seizures in 2013, they were for 5000 or less, but the average DEA seizure in 1998 was $25,000. So in 1998, they averaged uh, uh, 25000 in cash. It was down to 5000 in 2013. Uh, precisely the cap on what attorneys advise against trying to reclaim due to the legal fees and court costs. So basically, if you have anything seized under $25,000, like your car, um, and disproportionately the poor are affected by uh, drug, st- drug busts, ha- home invasions, cash mm-hmm. theft, um, they have absolutely no ability to get their property back. So 88% of Department of Justice seizures are administrative, meaning that they were never challenged in court, likely due to the high cost and risk associated with challenging a seizure. Or not even being notified correctly of right. when the auction was going to be taking place and everything else. 
United States courts have repeatedly ruled that simply having a large amount of cash on hand is, quote, strong evidence, end quote, of criminal wrongdoing, in particular drug trafficking. Then it's up to you to prove that you didn't get the money from drug trafficking. The Patriot Act created a new crime called bulk cash smuggling, which expanded the scope of civil asset forfeiture. So uh, if you, let's say your grandma has $80,000 in cash hidden in her house, you better get that to a bank and make sure that it's counted in the federal system or else. Or, well, you also have to make sure you do it in less than $9,999 a transaction or you're going to get in trouble. Equitable sharing is a process allowing police organizations to circumvent existing laws, and it makes money for both the federal government and local police departments. This process further incentivizes civil asset forfeiture as a means of funding local police departments at the federal, state, and local levels. With equitable sharing, state and local law enforcement turn assets over to federal authorities for federal crimes. The feds then return up to 80% of the assets back from whence it came. This effectively allows state and local authorities to circumvent relevant local laws by bringing in the feds. For example, in Missouri, seized money is supposed to go to the schools. When equitable sharing is used, nothing goes to the schools. So fuck those kids. Mm -hmm. From 2000 to 2013, equitable sharing payments to states have tripled from $198 million to $643 million. Only $3 million of this was actually seized in cooperation with federal authorities. So let, let me get this straight. They're, the asset forfeiture is supposed to go to the schools, but because of this system, they give it to the federal government. The federal government then gives it right back to them, but because it's not coming back through uh, asset correct. forfeiture, then it's a different bucket, so right. they can screw mm-hmm. the schools that way. That's correct. Okay. It's okay. money so make sure laundering, I understood. It's, it's exactly right. I understood right. the racket, right? So <laughs> yeah, It's money yeah. laundering every, through the federal for every, the police department. Every organized yeah. crime... Um, <laughs> It has a, so has a racket yeah. behind it. I just want to understand this the mechanism is jo- for this yeah. one. John Gotti every just, gover- John Gotti yeah. just got every a boner from hell. Like, yep. if, if you're walking near John Gotti's grave, he's jealous of this right now. What would you mm-hmm. say, Tricia? Yeah. No, every government is essentially a mob, if you think about it. Uh, just larger governments, especially like an empire like the U.S., are just like a really refined large mob. So... So between 2008 and 2015, $5.3 billion was seized through equitable sharing. Where the burden of proof is higher, equitable sharing payouts increase. In 2009, the federal government paid out $500 million in assets under equitable sharing schemes. This is up 75% from the previous year. And uh, let me go back. Excuse me. Uh, in North Carolina, law enforcement agencies get more than $11 million per year through their participation in the federal equitable sharing program, even though the state banned civil asset forfeiture and redirects all forfeiture proceeds into a fund for public schools. So even in the state where you're, you're banning it, they're using this program through the feds to get their money. And by the way, the feds aren't just giving the money back for free. What happens they're is they're taking is a twenty percent cut. They're taking a twenty percent right. cut, but then they're also getting the money because the police departments are using that money to buy new tanks right. and military equipment and guns and everything else from yeah. contractors and federal governments and everything else. Exactly right. And the military itself. So let's look at some of the uh the laws by state and if you're innocent, it can be a real challenge to get your property back. Remember that. 
At the federal level and in 35 states, the burden of proof is on the owner. In five states, it depends on what kind of property was seized. In the remaining states in the District of Columbia, the burden of proof is on the government. In some states, fighting seizure in court means the risk of paying the state's legal fees. Uh, Twice. In half of all states, law enforcement keeps 100% of all forfeited assets. In an additional nine states, 80% or more is retained by law enforcement. Now proponents say that asset forfeiture stops crime at their roots. If law enforcement officers are able to cut off the tools used to commit a crime, such as a car driven during a drug exchange, then crime rate should decrease, the thinking goes. In practice, though, it has a negligible impact on crime rates and has merely provides a perverse incentive for police to seize as much property as possible in order to fund their departments. The Institute for Justice found that more forfeiture proceeds did not resolve in more solved crimes or less drug use. The study also found that asset forfeiture activity increased in times of local economic stress. So that coming recession, protect your property, don't stop for the police. By comparing crime clearance rates to asset forfeiture revenue, the study found that the impact of forfeiture funds on crime fighting was, at worst, insignificant and, at best, wildly overstated. For example, the study reported that a $1,000 increase, $1, increase in forfeiture funding per officer would mean solving just 2.4 more crimes per 1,000 uh, reported offensive, uh, offenses. Excuse me. A recent survey of 560 civil asset forfeiture cases in four Texas counties conducted by the Texas Tribune found that half of the cash seizures were for less than $3,000, and 20% of the cases were not accompanied by criminal charges. Another investigation earlier in the year by several South Carolina news outlets reported more than 55% of the time when South Carolina police seized cash, they took less than $1,000. So they're literally beating kids up for their lunch money at this point. Um, A recent analysis of more than 23,000 asset forfeiture cases in Chicago between 2012 and 2017 found the median value was uh, $1,049. Nearly 1,500 of those seizures were for amounts under $100. So they literally just stop you and say, oh, what do you got in your wallet? And then go on their merry way. I mean, that, that used to be the, the the bribe to get you out of the crime. Now they just take it because they don't have to worry about it they, and they, take you to jail. Right. Too. If you say, if you want some of this money in my wallet, then let me go. Then you're going to jail. They don't even have to. You don't just don't say anything. Just hand them your wallet. Yeah, they have no incentive right. to, to take the bribe now. Right. It's unbelievable. Um, and I I had first heard about civil asset forfeiture. After becoming a libertarian, that's usually when anybody hears about it, is after they become a libertarian. Mm-hmm. And it must have been around 2011. And I didn't think that could possibly be true. I thought there's no way that the police, because even as a libertarian, you know, oh, you know, 10, 11, you're like, the cops aren't bad. You libertarian, you anarchists. And then you start to like, really look into it after Ferguson and you read Rise of the Warrior Cop and you're like, Hey, this isn't great. And then you know you hear about civil asset forfeiture, and you go, "Holy shit! This is just theft. This is robbery. These people are crooks." Like, there's I I don't know. When did you first hear about it, Trisha? You probably were just incensed. Yeah. Well, I would say you know, having come from the right, I did have a little police worship for a long time. But um, 
understanding the mob mentality of police, I think is really important. Um, so if you kind of study maybe, uh, like, uh, the mobs, uh, maybe during prohibition and stuff, um, you can understand that you, you need to, uh, obtain power over people. You need to control their finances and these are mob tactics. I mean, and it's been used throughout history. So what they're doing is scaring people into giving up their property because these people have, you know, they've, they've got the corner, they have the monopoly on the market. And so, um, you know, if you own a business, if you're your own person and you're driving down the road, well, you need to keep driving down the road, don't you? You need to keep running your business. So what are you going to do? You're going to give in to the mob because if you don't, you're going to be in a cage and can't work. And so when I started to understand that the police are basically mobs that are the arms of the government, then I started to understand that, uh, there's no, when you look back into monopoly, there's no recourse for police. You know, it's not like we can take this person's, um, their money or their property. And then, you know, if we did it the wrong way or we didn't, we violated their uh, constitutional rights or we broke some certain laws, then there'll be recourse. There's not recourse. The mob doesn't have recourse. Um, and so it doesn't really matter. So they just can keep perpetuating this. Uh, and so, I know it sounds like I hate the police and honestly, I'm going to say I'm not a big fan, but uh, they're basically the mafia. Only they have such a larger source of power because they come from government. Remember in places where organized crime had a real strong foothold, crime rates were really low because they didn't put up with that kind of junk. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, they did their thing and whatever they, you know, and, and, you know, you could say there was a lot of law breaking going on, but there wasn't a lot of crime. Right. Right. Those are two different things. Yeah. I think that's really important because I, I, I know that um, as uh, on We Are Libertarians, a lot of people are maybe newer to it. So I think there's uh, Dennis makes a good point. There's a difference between crime and crime. Um, so crime requires a victim. Otherwise, it's just a poor choice or something you probably shouldn't do or maybe you should. I don't know. Um, so crime requires a victim. And so when you, when you uh, define crime as something without a victim, and that's when you can enforce morality, which never works. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think therein lies a problem. That's pretty philosophical. Maybe that's too much. Well, I mean, the basic oh. libertarian <laughs> view is people should be free to live their lives as they choose, as long as they're not right. violating the rights of others to the same. It's, Almost word for word out of what Thomas Jefferson said in his first inaugural speech. Right. You know, the government that governs best is one that leads men to. Mm-hmm. Um, that governs the least. Yeah. To, well, to their own. Yeah. You know, you know, take care of themselves. And if they're not harming mm-hmm. anyone else, we leave them alone. Basically, it's, right. it's kind of what you said. I'm paraphrasing, but I've got it, the it actual quote. Yeah. But. It wasn't the, govern, the government that gives its citizens free Hawaiian punch is the government that's the best. That <laughs> I would think that's what he wrote, right? Well, that was course. exactly I mean, that it. Was, that was always the underlying right. sentiment, right? <laughs> I, I've been to Walmart. Our government gives free Hawaiian punch away. Uh, well, and we just, we just had this deification of law and order and police departments over the past mm-hmm. almost 20 years. I think it's really – it kind of started under Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, before that, I mean, when I was when I was kind of in my younger ages, and we were doing the hippies were out, and I was a little little young to be into the full 
hate Ashbury scene. But but you still did Molly and Dance Naked and hate no. Ashbury. You were just <laughs> I never made it to San Francisco <laughs> during the time, but um, there was always something about the government and the man and trying to stand up for our rights and let's have our own little communities and you know hippie communes basically is, is what uh, agorists are talking about. You know, volunteerists are, and stuff. It's it's the same thing, but um, it seemed like as soon as we, and. We almost legalized drugs in this country in the set in the late seventies under under Carter. It right. almost happened. Really, and then mm-hmm. Reagan came in and just went the other way with it. Well, so I, I I have never heard this. What what was the impetus for? De- they were going to deschedulize it. It was just something that that Carter believed in, and a lot of people in the society were saying. Everybody's smoking pot anyway. I mean, it right. was the 70s. That was that was the amazing thing about becoming an adult. And Trisha, I don't know about you, but I grew up, you know, early adulthood. I was in Christian communities and I was mm-hmm. raised in, you know, kind of a sheltered environment in some ways. Uh, drugs were just something that like people did on TV, but I didn't know anybody that d- did drugs at all. When I became an adult and granted, like adulthood happened while I worked at the Libertarian Party. I couldn't believe how many people smoked weed. Like it was half the adults that I knew. I mean, it's probably higher now than than it was ten years uh, ago. Yeah, I, was I would stunned. say pe- people are more comfortable with admitting they do it now too. Yeah. But um, yeah, I would definitely say a good twenty percent of people yeah. I know. And uh, yeah, when I was growing up, it was. I, I don't think it's a. I don't think that cannabis. I think it has a lot of uh, great medicinal uses, and I would encourage. You high right I now. Huh? I'm just saying I would encourage people to use that over pharmaceuticals for sure. The, the you hear that? That's yeah. Jefferson Airplane playing in the background of her. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's Pink, a little Pink white Floyd. rabbit, baby. <laughs> little, little Pink Floyd. Uh, so no, the I'm when, so juvenile. I'm like <laughs> pothead. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was growing up, I was um, you know, I kind of spent some time in the city. But when I got in the fourth grade, where we moved to the country, and in the country, right. there wasn't really a lot of drug use going on. Right. There was a lot of drinking going on. Right. Um, but I went to college when I was 17. I got to college and was in a, one of my friend's apartments um, not too long after getting there. And the first thing they did was just take this big old bong, fire it <laughs> up, and it was just they spent their whole day like that. I'm like, okay, this is different, you know. And then and then I just, living in Chicago at the time, I just kind of got introduced to the whole culture. And um, that I was really kind of... He took the hit off his from. first joint. His pupils got uh, big, and then the camera did, zoomed into his my, pupils, and then it was Dennis it was, floating through the spout. I don't think I've ever. Oh uh, no, no, joint. no! Dennis <laughs> didn't inhale. He didn't, he didn't in, inhale. That's right. <laughs> He's like Bill Clinton. No, I have inhaled, but no, it was a, it was a bowl. Okay. My first time, but I never. I've never done one of the big like big glass bongs. But how did it feel? What what what? How old were you again? Uh, well, I was 17 when I went to college, but I turned 18 about two months after I was there, a month after I was there. Okay. So I was probably 18. when it Okay. All right. And did you just get like sleepy or what? I just, it, like, no, it's the thing, the thing with me and marijuana, and I don't do it very often at all. I mean, I'm really not a pothead. I've done it. Four, that four, pineapple four, shirt. Four or says five times in my life. I've that, probably smoked pot. He's wearing a shirt. He's wearing an Apollo 11 t shirt and then an, a, a yeah. pineapple button up over this, it. This is high fashion. <laughs> this, this, is what the, smoke, this is the Gen X. I don't smoke weed often. That no, shirt disagrees. Sir. But I, you know, Pineapple Express, right? Um, but I, mean, I know people who do smoke a lot. Right. But Harry. 
That's just a, that's a joke. I don't know that Harry's ever smoked weed in his no, life. No, but for me, he deserves that. He for me, all right that now. all that really happens is my short term memory dis- dissipates. Uh-huh. So I'll be watching a TV show and going, "Okay, what's going on here?" Because I don't remember the last what happened five minutes before that, right? <laughs> and I'm just trying to figure it out. Especially if you're watching a really freaky movie to begin with, it's a really interesting experience. And then I just my um, face. Uh, contorts into a smile. You can't stop it. It's the muscles <laughs> almost start hurting. And I just laugh. And then I go fall asleep after about an hour of it. That's, that's it. Awesome. That's that's the extent of what happens when I'm when I smoke a joint. Yeah, I know. It's 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 unbelievable that it's still scheduled in the same right. class federally as heroin. It's and it's a much better experience or... than if I drank three beers. Right. You know? Yeah. Which, when I drink three beers, I do the exact same thing. I just kind of do my head like this and get a little fuzzy and start <laughs> laughing a lot. But I don't throw up when I'm smoking pot. <laughs> I think I'd be an angry drunk. What do you think, Trisha? Um, no, I think you'd be ridiculous drunk. Really? To be honest. Like, yes. Like I think goofy? you would probably sing show tunes, <laughs> do a dance. I am probably... Try to... The, I, I am so goofy when I'm drinking. Really? It's, people are like, you're so much fun when you're drinking. I'd sing the bishop's part from Les Mis. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you would come out like full voice tenor. Uh, I start, had a dream. <laughs> so all of a sudden, <laughs> Hitler did nothing wrong and starts singing my the producers. My filter completely goes, so I start making really bad jokes. I just <laughs> laugh all the time at everything. That'd be great. It's, it's pretty fun. My, my, 40th, my 40th birthday, my wife threw a surprise birthday party for me, and their goal was to have me wasted. As fast as possible, because they started giving me vodka martinis mm-hmm. the minute I walked in. It was I was just like, "Oh, this is weird." And she, they'd got a band and everything else it was really cool. What she did, and then um, my my parents were there, so this is the first time my mom and dad seen me <laughs> drunk. And oh, literally, no. literally, they were pouring me pure vodka martinis. That's it wasn't so they were like a little bit of vermouth in it, and I think I was plastered at fifteen, probably forty five minutes in. I was like. Just, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and, I, and I was like that for three hours. That's hilarious. Well, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing your stories here at AA. Thank you, Dennis. You're <laughs> lush. Hi, Trish. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a hippie pothead lush. We already just discovered this, right? <laughs> how I got anything, how I got a career or anything else is unbelievable. So how are, how are the police viewed today? Let's talk about uh, public sentiment around the police. Uh, there's an extensive Pew study on uh, this in the show notes. Uh, but the American public has increasingly come to view police as warriors and enforcers, not guardians. In fact, almost a third of the public now view their local police as serving an enforcer role instead of a protector role. It's working. Uh, In in recent years, police reform has become a major topic in the U.S. as tensions between citizens and the police have grown, especially after the 2014 killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. President Obama, after a grand jury deciding not to bring charges against the officer who killed Brown, said, quote, Understand our police officers put their lives on the line for us every single day. They've got a tough job to do to maintain public safety and hold accountable those who break the law. Uh, Critiques of police. Now, I will say that, um, who was I listening to? Rush Limbaugh, actually. Oh, Uh, Lord Jesus, Christopher. At some point last month, I heard Limbaugh say, uh, this woman called in and she's like, my husband is a New York, an NYPD officer. 
And it's, you wouldn't believe it, Rush. He's in Brooklyn, and he walks down the street. Ten years ago, they'd salute him because they worshipped them after 9-11, and now they'd throw things at him, and they're horrible to him. And I went, excellent. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't. Yeah, you, you, should, you not, should. You should not throw things at police. You should be polite to yeah. the police just as you should be nice to any human being you see in your Human path. being. Okay. Uh, now listen, that All is right. dehumanizing. That's what they do to okay. criminals. I'm just messing. I'm just messing. I know. She's not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't also go around throwing people in cages for plants. So. <laughs> I'm probably more human. Yeah, but you do shoot the dogs, right? Everybody does right. That, right. Well, yeah, you got to do that. I fear so, for my life. But I did think that it, it was uh, interesting that little anecdote about NY, even in the NYPD after 9-11, you know, almost 20 years after 9-11, it's, it's tough being a police officer there in New York City. You know what's really funny, too? They're talking about de Blasio yeah, basically about, yeah. like rotting out the reputation of the police. Why, do, why doesn't the fire department have this yeah, why? view? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a government I have a unique, I have a unique I mean, perspective on that. Go ahead. Um, so I happen to be in a relationship with somebody that does that. Um, what, puts and out, puts I out know fires this. or police. Or well, what? I'm not going to go into too much detail because I, I don't share too much. No, 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 no. I want to know. Is, were you dating a cop? No. Jesus, Lord, Christopher. <laughs> Do you not know me better than that? I'm not dating anybody that's employed by the state. Okay, so you weren't. So, all right. So you, who were you dating? Like, start the story over. I kind of it. Oh, he's going to kill me. <laughs> Is he watching uh, you right now? Oh, uh, no, uh, but I have known people uh, that do this as a profession, a firefighter. Okay. Um, uh, which uh, a lot of times they can be employed by a private company or by a city or a municipality or whatever. Okay. But I think or it's volunteer. funny that, um, yeah, um, he has another career, but uh, their cops look at themselves as such larger people than these people, like maybe a paramedic or a firefighter or like a first responder, responder that doesn't carry a badge and a gun. Um, and they're praised so much more. And it's like, you know, those people actually perform a service. Like, I don't remember, like, calling the cops to get me in trouble for anything. But, yeah, I've had people that are ill and I need somebody that has medical training or I've had an emergency situation where I need, like, a firefighter to come. And then you think about 9-11, who are the bravest people? Not the people that have held a monopoly on force with a gun. They were the people that went into a building to try to rescue people and stop a fire. That voluntarily chose. I mean, yes. That's, that's why we uh, honor uh, their sacrifices. That's that, a hero. Yeah. Right. That's it, a hero. It, nobody was standing there pointing a gun at police officers saying, run up that those stairs or firefighters run up the stairs. They voluntarily chose to go up and help and save people. And that's that that voluntary choice, that act of heroism is why we we honor and celebrate those people. We don't honor and celebrate people who who voluntarily Ooh. choose. Like I have never, I have never needed paramedics or fire the fire department in my life. Uh, I actually, I think I needed the fire department as a kid because I was watching like Jaws, and I was sitting in the living room and the just the roar of Jaws was intense. And then I look over and I'm like, the fireplace is on fire. Uh, but I, I was a kid, and what? so uh, but as an adult, I've needed the police several times. And you know what they've done? Absolutely not a goddamn thing for me. Yep. You know, yep. ever. 
They've well, every time I've had property stolen, they've never helped. They've never done anything. They're completely useless. They don't even show up half the time. They, they they've come four hours later and took a report down and said we can't do anything to help you. I, I talked mean, to police have done that. I talked to p- officers on the phone, but I've had plenty of interactions with police officers at traffic stops or, you know, like if you want to know why the the p- profession is under fire, most of the interaction that people have with them is as they're collecting revenue. Mm-hmm. And I was almost ticketed today. Fortunately, they got the guy in front of me. I will be slower to work tomorrow because now I know where they're setting the trap. Um, but they almost got my dumb ass twice now. Uh, that is the experience that most people have. And it isn't a, a pl- time when you voluntarily called for help. And usually, mm-hmm. w- a- a- and the amount of people that I have talked to that have called the police for help have not been helped. Domestic, right. domestic violence victims who call because the husband is genuinely outside their window stalking them. And the police officer says, in, in Amanda's story in episode 141, why didn't you shake your boobs at him longer so we could have caught him if he'd stayed out there longer if he'd done that? Jesus, that's Lord. The, that's the kind of help that I often hear police officers kind of giving. Um, and, yeah, and but so, if you call a paramedic or a firefighter, they're going to perform a service for you. Right. So... <laughs> It, yeah. it, 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 just, it If you want to know why the profe- the profession is genuinely, but again, let's go back to it. Why are police officers, yes, they're choosing to go to work every day, but they're be, be, they're being forced by laws into certain situations. Like, mm-hmm. you, you're telling me that we really need somebody to pull me over for going 10 over the speed limit on the interstate. You're telling me, we're, I'm watching cops fly by me every single day on the interstate. It's a charade. Mm-hmm. Speed limits are dumb, okay? I'm going to say They it. are. They're stupid. It- Everybody has that natural speed that you go that you know is safe, and your natural intuition, your incentive to not die is to slow down. I've always said that the law should be, if they're going to have a law, the law should be, if, are you driving recklessly? Are you driving right. dangerously? Are you tailgating somebody? Are you cutting people off? If you, somebody witnesses you doing that, Pull them over. I, I Give called, them a big old ticket. I called 911 two weeks ago, and I reported somebody for reckless but, driving on the interstate. He nearly put me in the wall. He was weaving in and out of traffic. He was going 100 miles an hour. He, I almost wrecked at, at 80 miles an hour on the interstate because of this guy. So I called in the license plate number. Right. But, uh, Trisha, do you still love me? <laughs> I don't know, Christopher. Like I, I understand the sentiment. If we had a voluntary society, there would be like a, like a hotline to call those people in. Right. The problem is you called the uh, uh, politi- the politician's arms in on him. Well, so. that's the option I had. And he was going to, he almost killed but, me and he was going to kill somebody else. So, But I would say at what Dennis said actually about speed laws, uh, there's a lot, I've read a few studies about um, speeding and how police officers, uh, when they pull somebody over, actually make the situation less safe and more dangerous. Um, and so it's really funny, like if, if say, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I'm driving down uh, 35 and I'm going 42 and a cop swings around the other way, almost cuts the guy off behind me and then comes and steals the money from a single mom that busts her ass so he can take his government welfare check home at night. He's the one who actually made me less safe. I was following the flow of traffic. So actually speed laws have nothing to do with safety, but like somebody weaving in and out of traffic and things like that, I... Obviously, in a voluntary society, you know, those people get pulled over and it's dangerous, you know, but I felt felt no speeding is really silly. I felt no guilt calling uh, the the armed enforcers in on that one. I'm I'm sorry. He was 
he was a danger to uh, the hood and drinking his juice. So well, yeah, no, no, and I think drunk driving, even though society. it doesn't have necessarily have a victim being po- uh, pulled over, I think that could be solved through a voluntary society. Well, yeah, and I think I, I see. I have a problem with drunk driving because people are so like, "Well, there's no victim." I'm like, you're making, you're putting yourself in a situation where you don't have complete control of yourself behind the wheel of a dangerous killing machine mm-hmm. that's reckless right right you are endangering the public uh there's a victim there right just because you got lucky and didn't hit somebody doesn't mean you weren't in a position to actually hit somebody it's sure. like going out with a gun in your backyard you know it, it, in a crowded street drunk and just waving it around and randomly shooting it's the same thing you may or may not hit somebody but you're still endangering everyone's life when you do that right so i don't see that as any different all right, so let's give you a little more uh, detailed information here. So critiques of police are often tempered by assertions that the police provide a necessary peacekeeping force to guard against crime and ensure that criminals are, are brought to justice. In reality, they operate as an armed collection agency, targeting citizens with traffic stops and imposing fines that have become part integral parts of the city's budget. The police, as James Baldwin once put it, are simply the hired enemies of the population. In America, we have made the police the primary problem-solving institution in our society. We profess a moral objection to something, say, sex work or drug use. So we criminalize it and charge the police with stamping it out. Most perceived threats to America's safety, urban gun violence, foreign terrorist attacks, immigrant crime waves, result, in fact, from American policies or are created wholly out of our imaginations. And I truly believe that once we realize that the government is at the root of so many of our bad ills in society, that it is, it is causing so many ills, and humans realize that they don't truly need the city, state, and government anymore, uh, they will start to reform it. But we're going to have to start swallowing some hard truths, and it begins with the idea that we are asking police to act as these armed collection agencies. Yes, there are a lot of good detectives out there, for instance, that you might see on those TV shows who do solve crimes. There are a lot of cops who do save lives, but there are a lot more people who are out collecting revenue for their local township uh, and instead of that LAPD beat cop that you, you, you've seen in, in uh, The Shield or on, on SVU. So it, it comes down to the fundamental idea that if you want police relations to be better with the, the public, then stop asking the police to do so much. Stop just having so many negative interactions with the public on a yeah. constant basis. They're not going to see you that way. I, I, would, I would argue that a lot of police officers, if you talk to them, feel that they're put in an unwinnable position. And they are. That's uh, part of the system is doing that. Which too. is why they're, they're, there's a lot of turnover in the job because they just go... Uh, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. I, I, I can't win. Politicians, I just read this uh, great book by a former LAPD cop called Rise of the Servant King, and he talks a lot about how it's like the, just the incentive structure of it is wrong, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a really good book. But so, I, I, would, I would add to that, and I think that um, we had touched on earlier, the profession of policing has very much changed. If you look even like statistically at... Uh, uh, rape, uh, murder, burglary arrests, burglary arrests back in the eighties, as opposed to now where nonviolent crimes are, uh, mostly looked at. I think that, um, the incentives in the profession profession have changed 
and that there's this super, there's this certain culture around police uh, that has changed and we're, lo- we're to look at them as some sort of uh, special class of citizens. They're almost like a special race, which I think is really strange. Um, I think that's evolved over the last maybe like 25 to 30 years. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with the state. Um, again, I go back to the 2002 Authorization Act where we kind of like gave local police uh, rights and um, privileges that would only be granted to militaries. Uh, and so I think maybe our whole mindset of policing and the police state and then the whole mindset of the police looking uh, for crime and looking not to serve and protect, but to find somebody doing something wrong. I think that's definitely been a huge, that's a huge part of what's wrong with policing in America. I think it has changed dramatically over the last 30 years or so. Okay. So, you know, if nothing else, we are fair and we are libertarians. Everyone says all of the time, we are libertarians is so fair. I've never seen a podcast more fair than this. We're going to give uh, the, the police their say. Uh, and like I said, if you if you are a police officer and listen to this, if you've made it this far into it, uh, send me an um, email because I would love to talk to you. Um, but uh, The Economist did a series of interviews with various police officers around the U.S., and this is what they had to say about their own job. One lieutenant from an urban Midwestern force put it, it sometimes feel like the only voice you ever hear is criticizing you. If you watch the TV news or our good work only gets two seconds, when we do something bad, it gets two minutes. Another officer, this one a veteran from a northeastern suburban force, says he thinks that the media and the rise of smartphones makes policing look worse than it is. The 10 mm-hmm. seconds you see a man of a man being hit with a baton, it looks horrible, but you don't always know what that man was doing. Any use of force oh. looks horrible, even if completely necessary i don't think that this is now you're reacting now there is some justification to that because you don't know exactly what was happening in a lot of these situations trisha is every police action where where they're subduing a a perpetrator with force is that a bad interaction in your eyes oh i would go to the question of why are they subduing somebody and so I would say probably 99% of the time, uh, it's wrong. What, what is your purpose of subduing this person? Is it worth physically violating somebody to enforce a law that a politician brought down on you? Were they selling cigarettes? Uh, yeah, uh, who I mean, cares? If it's, yeah, if exactly. It's... Who cares? I, I, I don't, I understand why they think that way. I just think that they think improperly. Um, if you are willing to, here I'm going. Here we're trying to be fair on We Are Libertarians, Chris, and I'm going in the opposite direction. So you That's can okay. just cut you, me off if you, you want. No, you okay. say your whatever you think. Okay. Sometimes I'm not super eloquent, but uh, that's if not we what are we're known trying for. To think of it. Okay. <laughs> Sweet. Then I fit in. Um, if you think objectively about it. Uh, it really doesn't matter what your intentions are. If you are, if you are violating somebody's rights and they have not hurt anybody else, you're the bad guy. But what if and, you get on tape a, a suspect or a known a person that's committed just a violent crime, for instance, a mass shooter or something, 
and you have a video of a person, let's say they've they've broken down the door and they're tackling a rapist and it looks violent as they're subduing them and beating them with a baton. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times we do, oh, they're beating the hell out of a, an Eric Garner, sure. for instance. Correct. Yeah, Christopher, how many times have you seen one of those videos? I don't sit there and watch all that like porn. Like I do, right. I do. Um, so and you're, I want to do. I did want to give a shout out to Police the Police. Yeah, uh, she's a, very, she's a, on a, Police the Police. A very good. Yeah. Um, so a DJ. very good friend of mine runs that, and I think that's super important. To everybody go like now. Now it's Police the Police 3.0 because they keep getting shut down. Um, most of the the videos you see of that are people that are charged with. Nonviolent crimes or crime, uh, maybe they're violent crimes, but they're not rape, murder, or burglary. Um, and so I don't think that anything ever goes viral of a police officer beating the crap out of a rapist. Do you know why it doesn't freaking happen? Do you know statistically the amount of murderers, rapists, and uh, burglar burglaries that uh, have been caught from the 80s to today? There's a huge disproportion to nonviolent crime arrests. Um, so I would challenge anybody listening to this to go find a video of a cop beating the crap out of somebody that actually hurt somebody because you're not going to find it because nobody cares. I also think that, it, that it doesn't go viral because people go, well, he deserved it. But if it's somebody who just got tased for having a taillight out, there's a certain portion of our population that goes, yeah, look at this bullshit. Right. Uh, so it goes viral it because should. people are like, hey, look at this. And they keep getting shut down, and that's really wrong. But I just, I, I'm trying to really bite my tongue on this show, Chris. But you don't I just, have to. I don't, okay. You're, I don't have pity for people that prey on other human beings and make a living off of stealing from them. I just don't have a lot of fucking pity for them. Okay. I just don't. I don't do that. Don't do it to me. That's pretty simple. You know, you didn't, you weren't born a cop. You don't have to be one. Maybe I was. You did you just assume my occupation? <laughs> Chris, you'd be the worst cop in the whole world. I would I would I would hug every criminal. I'd be like, who hurt you? You would. You'd be like, have you been to therapy? Because therapy's really good. <laughs> You're just suffering from childhood trauma. That's why you did this. Yes. <laughs> acting out. <laughs> right. This is your outer child acting out. Let's get in touch with the inner child right now. Put the gun down. Uh, I don't know why I turned gay as I, be I became a cop and I just didn't. Yeah, what like, the hell? Sir, this sir, rainbow? put that down now. Uh, <laughs> this is the rainbow cop deluxe. You don't have to. You can say whatever you want. Uh, just because okay. I said I was being fair doesn't mean you have to be. Uh, okay. You're what's called the voice of the listener or at least okay. the anarchist ones. Um, All right. Hey, there's like four of us. Right. So cops think that the public underestimates the threats to their life and why the use of force is sometimes necessary. Most of the officers interviews say that guns poison policing in America. Quote, they're literally everywhere, says one. And the problem with dealing with guns is that if I'm talking to you and you've got a gun, action always beats reaction. One female street cop points that having to carry our firearm automatically escalates violent situations. Quote, if I take a punch and I'm knocked out, they could take my gun, she says. We need to stay a step ahead of them, so we sometimes use a higher level of force. That was a point of view that I had never thought about, but it does make sense. And, uh, you know, if, if you're in England, the, the cops don't carry guns because they never had a strong gun culture here in America. Obviously, if you're a police officer in Chicago, you're probably going to want a gun. 
and uh, they they probably do think about it differently. Um, several of the half a dozen cops interviewed argued in one way or another that if people did not resist arrest, somebody hold Trisha back, they would not be hurt by the police officers. If somebody is fighting with the police and they end up getting shot, I guarantee you there is a point where the officer gave lawful orders and you have to stop resisting, says one. Another argues that people need to get used to cops acting forcefully. Quote, I would say that we need to train the public. These cops, a significant minority, seem to suggest that the use of force is always justified when people resist arrest or disobey orders. Dennis, you're acting like Trisha. Are you okay after that? How do you feel uh, about a member of the government? Train the police. Uh, train the public. Train That's the public. Right. Right. So mm. the, the, the meme that's going around where <laughs> it states that, you know, the public is expected to remain calm and do everything they're told perfectly right, right. when they've got a gun in their face, but the trained person, if they're encountering somebody with a gun it's literally or a says. dog, I'm sorry, but that one of the biggest pet peeves of mine is that these brave hero policemen are scared of a chihuahua or a little <laughs> pit bull or something. They're going to be mauled to death by these dogs. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. You don't want to be shooting these animals. Um, it, it's just it's kind of infuriating because the police are the ones who are supposed to be able to are supposed to be trained in how to defuse situations. They're not defusing anything. Right. I mean, what happened to teaching them how to defuse situations? Right. As we heard in the last episode, they're not trained. They're rarely trained. Right. And the other thing, too, is that we were reading through the statistics on, um, you know, the perceptions of, of the police and everything else. But the other thing that goes along with that is that we have lowest crime rates we've had in a long time. Mm-hmm. They've been going down steadily for decades. But if you ask people... 70 to 75% of them say that things are worse now than they were three decades yeah. ago. Right. Because there's just the mindset. And so they're the ones who are letting the police do what they need to do because they feel like there's so much crime out there. We have to have these people out there protecting us. And who are you to stop them from keeping us safe? And think of the children. Yeah, you're literally playing Simon Says, and if you don't play Simon yeah. Says right, you're going to get shot. Did you ever? Did either of you ever see the Arizona man sobbing and begging for his life in the yes. hallway of the hotel? Uh, yes. His name was, we actually covered it here on the show, his name is Daniel Shaver, um, and he's crawling on his hands and knees, basically begging for his life, and then the, the cops shoot and kill him. Uh, no, they murdered him, Christopher. They yeah. murdered him. So, I mean, you, you can watch this video, and I really think everybody should. So it, it's, uh, it's pretty shocking. Well, there's the men, there was a, the mentally challenged person that was in the street, unarmed, sitting, and right. was shot. Right. Um, was it Thomas Kelly, who was a, another person who had some mental issues, um, was beaten to death. Now, he wasn't shot. He was actually beaten to death by a bunch of policemen. Right. You know, I mean, it's... And then, then you see the Canadian police with a guy who's trying to get suicide by cop. Yeah. Right? He's trying to get suicided that way. And that policeman had a gun, but he stopped, didn't pull it, and diffused the situation and talked him down and got him contained without any violence whatsoever. That's what the training should be leading us to, yeah. is teaching mm-hmm. them how to really interact with those situations. Trisha, anything to say? Yeah, Trisha? 
Yeah, I think the training actually, um, so maybe technically the training tries to show them that, but once they get on, onto a department and become part of this brotherhood and this fraternal order, um, it's quite different. And what they're taught is that you're a victim. They want to kill you. There's a war on cops and you need to be proactive. And I think this whole war on cops uh, story and false narrative is part of the huge problem. It's patently false. Um, police officers have one of the least dangerous jobs with one of the best pays for the lowest amount of education. So it is not a super dangerous position. That's completely false. That's a media-driven narrative. Uh, I think that the most dangerous profession is to be a logger. I think it's a timber worker. Um, or a crab fisherman, are about, I think, too, is another yeah, yeah, I think podcaster. Yeah, police are about 13 down on the list. Um, and so it's actually a very safe profession, uh, if you consider it a profession, which I don't. Uh, and so <laughs> you drive this, you drive this narrative that you're in trouble and then you train cops to think of citizens as enemies. Well, that's a really bad mixture and that's going to produce a horrible cocktail and it has. And, uh, I, I, I don't know it. I think when you say that cops are victims, it's laughable to me, but most of the American public thinks that's true. So, so, uh, so it's a lot of perceptions. That's, and that's what I was trying to say earlier is that the majority of people have misperceptions about a lot of this information. And so yeah. they deify the police. They, they don't, they won't, mm-hmm. don't want to be harmed. They want to, everybody to be safe and they, they feed into the propaganda they've been fed. And that's why mm-hmm. it still continues. If we were demanding our rights, if we were standing up for ourselves as a majority, they wouldn't be able to get away with any of this. We'd be able to stop it. Yeah, uh, it's just not the situation right now. So more education is the only thing I can think of. Getting the word out, trying to somehow change mm-hmm. the perceptions in this in this country for that. Why is it so difficult for a Republican to understand that a person in government, whether it's state or federal or local? might be um, impeding on their rights and might not have their best interests. But at the same time, the arm of the government, which would be locally the police force, they can't understand that. I don't understand how you could think one could take your liberty and the other could not. Well, it's, it's mostly because their opponents think the other way. So they yeah. just parrot yeah, it's, it's, the opposite of whatever yeah, yeah. The, tri- yeah. the other tribe says. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, final comment is another problem that officers are often judged according to how many people they arrest, not how many crimes they actually prevent. It's all about numbers now, laments one suburban cop. Does an officer spend two shifts working on a burglary, or does he go out and write 20 speeding tickets? There are a few incentives. There are few incentives for trying to solve problems, explains another. The people who get promotions, the people who get specialized jobs, are the people who get arrests. Uh, so again, it goes back to the, and I would invite everyone to go watch The Wire, the entire series. It's uh, it's a documentary basically on the dysfunction of city governments, and not just Baltimore. I can tell you, as somebody who was heavily uh, involved ar- around city government for a while here in Indianapolis for about a decade, the, all that stuff happens here in Indianapolis, and it's a pretty darn good functioning city compared to Baltimore. Uh, there's even a reverend. Uh, in town with like the same name, <laughs> Stephen Clay, uh, with uh, much worse problems than that Stephen Clay, but very similar problems uh, in addition. So 
Um, but yeah, the wire kind of shows the the improper incentives, uh, and much like any bureaucracy, the if you try to do the right thing, then you're doing the wrong thing, and if you do the in, uh, unimportant thing, then you're doing the right thing. And it's all about making the politicians look good. The Shield was the same way. Documentary, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And and that's you know what this LAPD cop in this book talked about. He's like. Uh, he went to get a job at a suburban uh, branch, and they were like, "How many felony arrests did you have? Forty. Uh, you had forty felony arrests. This guy only had twenty in the last year. He goes, no, forty a month in L.A. You know, but because there's just so much crime. But it, uh, anyways, so yeah, there's there's a a lopsided set of in, of incentives, and this cop ended up leaving the LAPD because he was, you know, during the riots. After the riots, he was actually like, you know sweeping criminals up off the street and like trying to like he was arresting murderers and and basically the politicians took control of the police department after the riots and everything went completely apeshit and upside down at the LA in LAPD and basically it was just in traction like you were to do the wrong thing that would make crime worse because the politicians were in charge of the police department at that point so um Again, it all goes back to just the wrong set of incentives and the wrong ideas. So um, let's do so, f- final thoughts on this stuff. Let's start with Reinhold. Go ahead. I was going to say, so can we put together a plan to fix everything? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no. So what would that plan be? I have, I have nothing. This is the best I can do is we are libertarians. Love I mean, we're going to get that, too. You're going to say, oh, you, all you do is complain, but you don't provide any solutions. I, like, used, well, to have, I used to have great ambition, <laughs> and then I did this show and started learning and then I, all my ambition was like, I can't fix any of this. Right. So really, that's the, the problem is that how do you fix that sort of thing? And um, there's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of people trying to figure out ways to do that. But until the perceptions of the people change, I don't really think you're yeah. going to get anywhere with any of it. Um, and I don't know how to change that. That's the problem. We need uh, money or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. Just money and power, just putting out the message and finally getting through to people. Hey, you know, it doesn't need to be this way. I truly do think memes have made an impact, Tricia. Yeah, no, I, I would quite agree. Um, I think always with, with any um, movement, uh, changing people's minds and hearts is primary. I would say there are some groups out there um, working politically and legislatively that are, are doing good. Um, I work with uh, the coalition to fight the injustice at the county jail here. We've had several deaths, people being held on nonviolent crimes. I just met with a guy from Americans for Prosperity, and they're working at decriminalizing, uh, uh, working at mandatory sentencing and uh, lightening that. So I think there's definitely things we can do. But I think the most important thing is making people understand uh, that they don't have to buy the lie that the uh, mainstream media is selling them. And because you distrust a police officer or a certain situation or a law that they're enforcing, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you unpatriotic. It doesn't make you, you know, uh, some type of criminal. It's good to be skeptical. Um, and I, I think that if we can get people to the understanding where, they're questioning law enforcement's motives, whether they, in the end, feel like it falls on the good side or the bad side. I think that that's where you win because then everything comes out of that. Once you um, question government and, and 
at least our government. That's part of, I don't think people view them as that, but they are. So once you question it um, and you let go of your preconceived notions, I think that's really important. And I think changing hearts and minds, that's always what it goes back to with libertarianism. Yeah, and I would include the police in that. I think that the best way to change this is through dialogue with both local politicians and local police. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to make enemies out of them, that's part of why I never really liked the cop block movement, is that they would go out and, uh, at least, uh, you know, our good friend Maya uh, would go out and intentionally inflame relations with local police to the point that uh, it really put in jeopardy a local um, nonprofit that she was working with at the time. And, you know... that that kind of inflammation doesn't actually change anybody's behavior. It only hardens their position and makes them more militarized because mm-hmm. uh, just that's human nature. And, and and then I contrast that with the what the Free Talk Live guys have done in Keene, and they've had a hard time pe- keeping police officers there employed in Keene because uh, the Free Talk Live guys take them out for coffee and just dialogue with the cops and try and challenge their beliefs try to understand the police uh, and their that individual as a human being and why are you doing what you do, what's your motivations, have you ever thought about this, and uh, get a lot of police officers to retire that way. And I think um, you start changing it from the inside a little bit because you're challenging the perceptions of local politicians mm-hmm. and local police officers and departments, and you're doing it in through positive dialogue as opposed to conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think if you're if you're causing more conflict, then you're not actually being a, a positive for your cause. All right, and I think a, one way to to look at this too is a great point was made by uh, Cody Johnson on the um, Some More News thing. And I know it's a comedy thing, but he made the point of why is media so bad and why are we so polarized? And that's because he he goes to the point of saying that the local news is dying. And the local news mm-hmm. is where we used to have the most balanced right. reporting. And now that there's not that balanced reporting that people go to all the time, you end up with these polarized outlets who are just feeding their yeah, constituency, you, right? You, no, you don't even have that on the local level. Yeah. What you get on the local level here in the 12th largest city, and I'm sure it's like this everywhere, what you get in terms of news on the local level is an anemic newspaper that might print some bulletins mm-hmm. And then you get Facebook right. and Facebook groups, and it's mm-hmm. just screed. Right. And there's a reason that the journalism is important, and there's an editorial process, mm-hmm. uh, and you see it in Facebook groups. Yeah, and it, but it used to be that way. It used to be you know thirty years ago when we really had strong local newspapers that weren't beholden to making money. They were just part of the service that was provided, and they understood that. Yeah. Uh, they were making documentaries that they would portray and say, oh, this this thing happened, and they would put together this big article and story and a documentary on it, and it would get things changed because yeah. people would see that and they want to take action. Right. But no one's doing that now because they're all dying out because nobody cares about local anymore. They're just going right. to the to where they're getting mm-hmm. the tribe news from. Right. Right. So the the question is how do you fix that? And that was part of the the whole comedy spiel on how to do that. But um, there are ways I think we do, but we really need news organizations coming back locally or just not having a profit motive. Yeah. You know, to, just to be organizations who are dedicated to providing news and not, understanding that they're not going to be out to try to bake a buck. Yeah. That doesn't sound very libertarian, Dennis. That sounds very libertarian. Not having a profit motive? 
<laughs> you don't have, profit motive. Libertarian isn't about making money. Libertarian is about being able to do what you want to do. If you choose to do something voluntarily of your own free will, and, and Dennis, Dennis, what do people want to do freedom. as individuals? It depends. Every individual is different. You can't say what every individual wants, right? I, I grew up around hippie communes. What are you, an objectivist? Oh. Right? <laughs> are, you, so, are you an objectivist? I, I am. Listen, I am a little bit. I, I'm a, a student of objectivism. I don't say that that's my philosophy. Okay, because you know what would I happen. Really you know what would happen if you said you're an objectivist? <laughs> what? Mute. <laughs> no. See, you can't even hear her. She is ripping me a new asshole right now. <laughs> she is screaming at me like a typical objectivist. I am not an objectivist. <laughs> Christopher, turn my mic back on. Okay, you're on. You're turn on. it back on you're right on. the fuck now. All right, you're on. All right. I, I'm not an objectivist, but typical I Typical libertarian demanding that. a microphone oh. she didn't buy. Right, but I think that's part of the problem, too, I think, is a lot of people think... How liber- dare? I'm going to kick your ass, Chris. <laughs> fuck it- off. A lot of libertarians you're shorter in person. I got the finger going. You're now. shorter in person. You I can take you. Uh, I'm not short. Why do you say I'm short? You are I'm short. Five, people, people, I'm five, six. No, you're tiny in person. People think that Trisha is very tall. And when you see her in person, you're like, she is tiny. That's because I have an attitude. <laughs> yes. It is. Chris, don't call me an objectivist ever again. I, I, I won't. The, yeah. I'm, no. Uh, if you well, are on a date and they say they're an objectivist, run the other way. Well, she said she was a student of objectivism. Yeah, right. Uh, I get yeah. it. Well, I'm a student of Buddhism, but I'm a practicing Christian. It doesn't mean anything. It just means I like knowledge. Come on, Dennis. <laughs> you're a huge liberal. You can get down with this. He's a Taoist, too. Cute. I'm a Taoist. Yeah. Oh, full blown. Oh, yeah. We got all the yeah. religions. We just need a Well, the first libertarians were Taoists. Were they? Yeah. Who? 5,000 years ago. Oh. You read read the the old Taoist articles and that's well, what they were talking I've about. I've only been around for twenty nine years, so I wouldn't know, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <gasps> something got in my throat. I hate you so much right now. <laughs> oh man, I love you, Trisha. You're funny. <laughs> Me too, babe. <laughs> All right, uh, did it, is everybody done that's, saying their kind final, of my final thoughts? Okay, Trisha, your final thoughts for the show. Plug yourself. Uh, no, I no, I thought well. Go follow Gingerarchy. Follow me on social media. Go to wearelibertarians.com, of course, because you're listening to the show, but uh, subscribe. Um, I was going to say, uh, no, I, I appreciated the way you approached this. Actually, the show notes were completely awesome. That research was really good because um, I don't want to, even as an anarchist, I don't want to give off the uh, uh, feeling that uh, I'm, I hate cops. and well. I'm going to say I dislike them very much. but uh, I don't know. I feel I a lot of hate, to be honest. Okay, I do. I, I'm going to say I have an extreme dislike for them. But I think that there's a really important point to the fact that you should be able to have a conversation with them. And so uh, I think that's a good starting point. I actually had a couple really uh, cops message me um, on social media and talk about... Answer me, bitch. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, why don't you answer me? I love you. You're beautiful. I hate you. Die. No, that was not the cops. Actually, it was really a really interesting conversation. I'm going to have one guy on uh, Ginger Arky. But uh, so I think that there's definitely a line between, you know, just being like FTP, which I won't say what that means. And then saying, here's why I think what I what I think about the police in America. So uh, I just I want to give uh, make that very clear that. 
I don't advocate violence against police officers. Yes, I have very much disdain and dislike for them, but I also am really willing to have an open dialogue dialogue with them. And so I appreciate what We Are Libertarians does in that fact. Thank you. And don't mm-hmm. forget the, the, those those notes. Who wrote those notes? Sam Schultz. They were great. It. Isn't yeah. Sam great? He yeah. is, um, yes, he makes me sound so much smarter than I am. He... He does a lot of research. He's just really, uh, I have no idea what he looks like. He's not in any of the other Facebook groups. He could be a total plant. I have no idea. I've never met him. I know nothing of him. He just, he just turns. Are you serious? I'm Chris? dead serious, he yeah. Tur- and he turns, his, he turns him around so fast. <laughs> he does it. He does all that work. Turns like around so fast. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you just you get a mic and start your own podcast. You get- Shut up, Dennis. <laughs> Shut up. No. Ixnay on the uh, oddcast pay. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He l- Listen, he writes really well, but maybe he just needs the voice to give him charisma. That's and right. And that's what we're doing, right? Are we doing that? And when you think charisma, you think, you think Chris Spangle. That's right. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just he he does I'm laughing too hard at that. I know, thank you. Yeah, asshole. <laughs> um yeah, Brian Nichols of the Brian Nichols show uh messaged me, "Hey, is uh, are all the show notes in a, an easy to grab location so I can go and read those?" I was like, "No, cuz that would take organization, but maybe I'll have Paul <laughs> do it since he's not doing anything else." Oh, no, no, no. I'm he's, having a show with Brian in a couple I, I weeks. <laughs> So, yeah, Brian's awesome. Brian uh, yeah, does a great job guy. over in his show. So uh, yeah. Sam is just one of the many people like uh, like these folks are, like Trisha and Reinhold and, and Paul and many others. But our patrons always uh, help us do amazing work. I'm excited to see Jason Doolittle next week in, in uh, Texas and Dallas. That's where I'm going. Uh, Craig DaCosta is, has been a great patron for a long time, as has Christy Avery. Uh, and we're excited to have Jeff Bennett along and Ed Brehob as well. Uh, in the uh, Patreon group. So you guys are great supporters of the show, as are all of our patrons. We thank you guys so much. Uh, thank you to Mitchell Mike Weintz, Mike Mankiewicz. Uh, Mitchell, I'm very sorry. Uh, but Chris, I wanna... what the hell? <clears throat> but uh, I talk to him all the time <laughs> over on uh, Twitter, so uh, he can give me shit there for mispronouncing his name. Thanks uh, so much for uh, upping your contribution um, we've got a lot of great patrons. I'm actually, you know, we're at the end, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the twenty five dollar and ten dollar. It's gonna be a lot of names, but I want to just uh, say thank you to these people by name because all of you guys do such a great job of uh, faithfully contributing to the show through uh, financially and helping support people like uh, our other hosts as well as this show and and keep things going. Uh, I mentioned Mitchell. Thanks to Andrew Bowman, Paul Jonathan Eads Jr. Uh, Stone Aldridge, who helps run the Instagram. Ryan Lindsay, who does a great job of running Wall Reader. Go check that out at wallreader.com. Liberty Memes. Yes, that Liberty Memes is a $25 a month supporter. Ray Wolf, Mario E., Rob Place, Reinhold, thank you for being a $25 a month contributor. Uh, Catherine Iverson, Richard, The Liberty Extract, Michael Schulteis, Joshua Sexton, Jacob Klingensmith, Rick Irvine, Carly Ernst, Brandon Kester, uh, Dan Dunbar, Christopher Brokoff, and uh, Todd Singer. Thank you guys so much for being $25 a month contributors. And at the $10 level, I want to thank Spencer Nelson, 
uh, Jessica, Miranda Keller, Nick Economopoulos, Chris Lane, Jim Gratner, Hody Johns, our man. He will be back. He's just having computer problems. He's not uh, fled the scene. Uh, William White, Joe Kubinski, Zach Ripple, Don McClellan, Hadley, uh, sorry, uh, the cat is in the way, uh, Hadley Bo- Boz Fisher, Jordan Laycock, Brian Littleton, Brian Litton, excuse me, Shane, uh, Ryan Roberson, uh, Avenge- you know what, I've even asked her how to pronounce this, I'm so sorry, uh, Virginia Maktava. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, I'm, I am so bad at pronouncing names. Logan Knoll, <laughs> Der- Logan Knoll, Derek Scott, Michael Eugene Rowe, Toby Stoltzfus, Albert Morakowicz, man, he's going to give me shit, too, because I talk to Al on uh, Twitter all the time. Tom Howd, Mark English, Chris Murray, Samuel Alexander, Chris Bartline, James Darling, Ryan Clancy, and Rebecca Cash. You guys are all fantastic, and we have many different uh, $5 folks. I'm not going to read all of your names, but we do appreciate that, and I just... uh, I'm very thankful for everybody that contributes to We Are Libertarians in a, in a multitude of ways. Um, it, it really keeps me going, and I've been doing this for almost eight, nine years now. <laughs> um, uh, oh, man, what? So 2012, yeah. March of 2012, mm-hmm. uh, so almost eight. Yep. Well, so, that's that's when you'd been in this podcast, but you were doing a podcast before that. I was. Even. The Libertarian yeah. Party of Indiana podcast. I've been doing this for 10 right. years now. So over 10 years I've been podcasting uh, and uh, also do Leaders and Legends, a, pro- a project I'm really proud of. I produced that. And then uh, the Pat Down, the, the comedy podcast, which, Trisha, I know you listen to the Pat Down. Yeah, I love it. And I'm so excited to see Miss Pat in Cincinnati next month. I may actually be opening that show. I know. I'm going to heckle the shit out of you. Oh, great. So uh, <laughs> I, may do, I may do stand-up for the first time. We'll see. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm thankful to everybody who keeps us going uh, because after seven years, seven and a half years, I'm tired. And uh, you guys all really help keep this thing going. So thanks so much to everybody that listens. Uh, like I said, I will be out of town next week. Uh, so that's why we got that the second one in last week for you so you won't be too lonely but you'll have ginger Arky and our other podcasts which you can find out with your libertarians to keep you tided tied over so uh we'll see you in october thanks for listening